0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, the GOP met in Colorado for their third debate. And once again, we were struck by how many of them there are. So many candidates, plus Jim Gilmore, the human asterisk. Will this be the debate that finally begins the winnowing? We're going to be asking that question and challenging our own assumptions. Meanwhile, Congress has, well, well, they've actually agreed to a budget deal, at least a principle. It's a two year budget. Will they raise the debt ceiling? Will there be no crises? Will Paul Ryan's sweet speaker deal get a lot sweeter? Or is Rand Paul going to unleash the power of the filibuster to defeat comedy? Looks like we're going to find out. Finally, Elizabeth Warren just embarrassed Wall Street again, this time with a new report detailing the extent to which bad financial advisors get lavish vacations as a reward for steering clients into terrible investments. At the rate she's going, America might not have a grifter sector of the economy left for anyone to make money in. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Marina Fang, Shaheen Nazirapour, and Lauren Webber. But here's what happened first.
2: Hey there. Welcome to So That Happened. I know I'm Zach Carter. I'm not Jason Lincolns. But don't worry, he's going to be right back in just a minute. I'm joined today by Arthur Delaney and Lauren Webber. And we're going to get right to it and talk about the latest and third Republican debate, which happened on CNBC on Wednesday night. Uh, Lauren, wh- what, what did you make of it? Who, who won? Let's, let's start with that. Who
3: won? You know, Zach, you and I have a difference of opinion in this matter, but I think that Marco Rubio won far and away in the debate. And, and you know, does that mean that he was the best guy ever? No, it means everybody else was pretty terrible and he did decent. Uh, that's kind of my takeaway. And he had that Jeb and him showdown was just, I mean, I'm sure that's going to be on replay for the next. 48 hours on the cable news. Rubio slaughtered him. And he slaughtered him. I mean, it was just no contest. It was like, Jeb, why don't you pack up and go home right now?
4: So, who, do you,
2: who do you think won, Zach? Well, so I... I, I look, my head is kind of with um, with Lauren there, but... But, for but his the heart sake of, is somewhere else. For the sake of being contrarian, I, I thought... Um, I thought uh, Ted Cruz actually had a really good debate. He did a good I, debate. I, I thought uh, you know all of the all of the like anti-establishment guys, the the Donald Trumps, the Ben Carson's, the Carly Fiorinas. You know, I I thought they all did really pretty poorly, and and that uh, and that Ted Cruz got a lot of big applause lines um, without really falling on his face at any point. I mean, he he CNBC called him out for like crying foul on the debate moderation. But I don't think anybody in the Republican base really cares. I thought he just looked—you know—you're you're used to seeing Donald Trump come out in these debates and just kick everybody to pieces by saying really nasty things, and he didn't really do that. And so the guy who was the most vocal, ridiculous, belligerent, like alpha male on stage was Ted Cruz tonight. So I felt like that was—you uh, know—that that was there, there's a case to be made that he won the debate. I thought he did fine.
4: I agree with what you said, but that's not going to be enough to th- catapult him forward in the polls. So for that reason, I don't think he went, I don't think it's actually possible. To win one of these with this many candidates, I think you can only lose
3: can only get knocked out?
4: And I thought Jeb Bush totally lost, mm. and to a lesser extent, John Kasich lost.
3: Oh, I disagree on that, but we can talk about well, that.
4: well, Donald Trump didn't you know wasn't all that belligerent in, in crushing people, but I did think he crushed John Kasich right out of the gate when he was like, John, you, you got lucky as, as governor of Ohio with the fracking
2: and the oil. And, and, you were and on, the Lehman you were on, Brothers. You were on, you were at Lehman Brothers. You are an executive at Lehman Brothers when they went under. I mean, I felt like that was humiliating. You know,
3: for it was him. humiliating. But I feel like he had some other good points. And like I said, he's playing that New Hampshire game. And Jeb Bush did terrible, and that's where he's going to pick up people. It's it's
4: uh, it's the intangibles. Just the mojo of Kasich was gone immediately after that moment. Uh, but nobody's mojo was really deflated there. more than Jeb Bush's.
2: Oh, so did either of you guys think that, uh, that there were any Republicans who were on stage uh, at, at the debate who um, who would have done better than Bernie Sanders did against Hillary Clinton in the Democratic debate that we saw a couple weeks ago? No. Are there? I, oh, I th- I think Ted Cruz and
4: several of the other guys would be able to hold their own against Hillary. I mean, Bernie wasn't really attacking Hillary. Mm hmm. If you're imagining. But he's still lost. I just like
3: I can't see right now. I feel like Marco Rubio would need to really buff up his strategy because right now his strategy is just kind of stay above the fold. And when it's just him and Hillary, it'd be a very different.
4: Bernie did poorly uh, when he was just stumbling over his own record on guns. And and uh, Hillary didn't have flubs like that. But there wasn't so many direct attacks.
3: It's a hard comparison. Right. Yeah. The
4: Republicans are attacking each other. Although Chris Christie, I guess you could say, was attacking Hillary Clinton.
2: But I don't think he would really be able. So was
3: Pataki in the undercard debate, but you know, not that anyone cares.
2: <laughs> uh, well, there, there's kind of an elephant in the room. I feel like when we, when we talk about this, uh, at least the way we've been talking about so far, and that we, we have not yet mentioned the current front runner in in most of the polls, most recent polls, uh, for the GOP nomination, uh, Ben Carson. Um, I I admit I am totally baffled by his candidacy and his enduring popularity with Republican voters. I I don't have a hypothesis or or, or theory for why he's popular, but how did you guys think he did tonight? He didn't help his cause at all. My
4: hypothesis for his uh, supremacy right now is it just shows that the media is running the Republican primary and that whoever's in front and is being attacked by the media, quote-unquote attacked, you know, whoever's having their policies prescriptions and statements accurately described and analyzed is whoever's going to be the front runner in the polls.
3: I just I just have such a hard time staying awake when Ben Carson talks. And I would have thought that this was his worst debate performance of the three. Yes. But he's only gone up in the polls after the last two. So who knows? I mean, he may go up further. I just every time Ben Carson says a number, I want to fall asleep.
4: He did poorly under direct attack. I think he was mostly under attack from the moderators. And that was different in this debate than in the past he debate. He said
2: this really weird thing, okay? The moderators were like, hey... Ben Carson, you've said that you want to cut taxes to uh, ten percent, and the
3: tithing issue—that's
4: that, impossible.
2: Was... And he said, "Look, that was just sort of like a tithing thing, man." <laughs> and actually, maybe maybe the number's closer to fifteen percent. That was weird. Then he apologized for it later.
3: He apologized for it later too, in like a weird exchange. He also had to stand up for some sort of hawking of nanotech or what was it? Exactly? Oh my
2: God, this was so weird. He got called okay. out for
3: basically like a bag Kim Kardashian endorsement of some product. And I he mean,
2: lied. He just. Lied about it. It was amazing. Amanda Turkle did a great piece on this. They were called uh, Manatech, which sounds like manatee, but tech, uh, and it's it's a it's a health supplement. Thing which the Republicans deregulated several years ago, which was a, uh, deregulating the sub- supplements industry tangent was a great thing for the Republicans because it mostly just scams dumb liberals who think they're gonna like you know be able to lift more weights with this stuff and it's deregulatory, <laughs> so Republicans win. Um, so they're, they're taking re- liberals' money, but uh, but Ben Carson was was this, this spokesman basically.
5: The wonderful thing about a company like Manatech is that they recognize that when God made us. He gave us the right fuel and that fuel was the right kind of healthy food. Basically what the company is doing is trying to find a way to restore natural diet as a medicine. A lot of people are surprised they go out and they see a dog that's sick eating grass. Why is that dog eating grass? He should be eating meat. No because the dog, the dog recognizes, or maybe he not, doesn't cognitively recognize it, but something in him recognizes that natural green produce has the things in it that will make him feel better. Now, if a dog can come to that understanding, we with our sophisticated brains ought to know that there's an awful lot of really good stuff and natural products, and uh, that's why uh, I was uh, drawn toward Manatech.
2: This ridiculous company claimed that their supplements would cure like cancer and cystic fibrosis and these other really intense dis- like disorders and diseases. And uh, and he was called out by it by CNBC tonight. And he said that, that's just propaganda. That's just propaganda.
4: However, I'm that sure. that response is the same thing that Marco Rubio said when he was attacked over you know his personal spending habits. He says, well, it's all just not true. Yeah, it was was true. (laughs) It was totally true. But playing it off in Rubio's case is very effective because the Republican electorate hates the media and love to see you going against them. But Ben Carson, meanwhile, is just kind of like falling asleep.
3: Ben Carson couldn't even really what? mount offending off of it. He was just like, I, I didn't approve that. I don't know. But look, he's know. done this twice with less inflection it? than I just did that. Yeah, he's
2: <laughs> done this twice before. I mean, I remember Lauren, you and I were here talking about this after the first, after the first debate. Yes, and and I was like, man, boy, Ben Carson, he really got slapped around in that debate. What a, what a pathetic job. And he then did. he only goes up. And his poll numbers are up. So like, I don't know. I
4: think that owes more to his statements about the United States resembling Nazi Germany and <laughs> and various things. You being know, you gotta, like gotta love
3: slavery. it when slavery comes in it's, all, it's, the, all the time and stabbing people. He recently has been recounting the story about how he almost stabbed someone. Or, I'm no, so did. well. That's, that's no. That's that's
4: in his book. I mean, that's part of his life story. He was a bad kid at one point, but he got better. But and I, still. I he, he said, you know, I would, you know, these people who got shot in a mass shooting just let themselves get shot. People like love that, but it's not it's not a debate shtick. It's not something that he uses in a debate. So I I actually do not think the debates are the reason he's been doing well. Uh, I don't think this will help him. Maybe people will get tired of his sleepy shtick
2: All right, and well, get rid of it. I, I want to throw a, a contrarian, like, anti-establishment, sort of anti-mainstream dart into this. Uh, the undercard debate, as you mentioned earlier, Lauren, actually did happen. And, it did. And it
3: existed, actually. Parts of it were,
2: honestly, actually, honest, to be quite clear, I found it far more entertaining than the overcard debate, um, but only because of one guy. And that was Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham. He's swell.
3: But Lindsey Graham won the last undercard debate, and how, you know, did it do him much good? Carly
2: Fiorina is the one who went up. Well, from the first one, she she bumped up from undercard. Lindsey Graham almost didn't
3: even make this second undercard debate. He barely made it onto the stage. Still won, but barely uh, made it.
2: But here's the thing. I I overwhelmingly believe that he won the undercard debate, and I think he did better than most of the candidates on stage in the overcard debate tonight. But he did so despite saying things about himself that were, like, not terribly flattering. Like, I'm a crappy student, he said multiple (laughs) times. Yeah. Uh, He repeatedly emphasizes— I'm alone. Yeah, he emphasizes— He really
3: emphasizes how lonely he is. Uh,
2: I love (laughs) that— (laughs) <laughs> I, I mean, I, look, life is pain and, and the universe is an empty void and all of that. But like, you know, Lindsey Graham deserves love. I don't know if he deserves to be president, but I hope I hope we I all hope, so, we hope somebody, somebody, somebody loves to that go to man. Thanksgiving
3: with. I mean, he seems like
2: a really I think he's wrong about a lot of policies, but he seems like a really nice guy who just who just needs to find some love. Do you,
4: do you think he should take somebody's place on the big debate stage or do you just want to invite him over for
2: dinner? Both. Get Chris Christie the hell out of there. He no, just get Rampall, get Rand, about No, Social
3: get Rand Security. Paul out of there. Get Rand Paul out of there. Paul, I, yeah, get yeah. rid of Rand Paul, but Lindsay Graham. Ca- yeah,
2: the cane
4: hook is coming uh, Yeah,
3: it's, it's from coming. behind the it's curtain. I
6: mean
4: <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, no, Rand Paul tonight was basically invisible.
3: He literally, once they called on him, he didn't even realize they were talking to him for a while. He had to ask him to repeat the question. There was like a kid in class that wasn't paying attention.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, I felt like Rand was essentially not not there. And and I, I'm increasingly curious just on what the rationale for his candidacy was or, or is. I mean, at some point, he was the libertarian guy who was going to stand up to the Republican establishment. And then he was like, maybe the guy who was cool with all the wars. And then maybe <laughs> he wasn't cool with all the wars. And then and then what? what is it? I mean, I, I published a piece for, for us uh, on, on Wednesday night, which said, um, you know, he's actually the one guy who the hyper conservative tax foundation has said that his tax proposal is, is, will actually make money for the, for the federal government instead of lose money for it. Um, but then in the same piece, I said that, that their assumptions are insane and more reasonable uh, analyses. He would lose $15 trillion. Like is, is that, that, that's the, that's the, best, the closest thing I can come up with is that like the tax foundation says his, his tax plan is better than others. He's Do you think
3: the average primary voter has any idea that that's what the tax foundation says? No, no, they have no idea. They have no idea what Rampall' is. He, he attacked tax plan is.
4: the congressional budget deal this week from the left, saying it raids Social Security. What? That's not something that you
2: have. Uh, he also
3: went after Paul Ryan.
2: Okay, so look, uh, we, we have concluded that somebody needs to love Lindsey Graham. Very important. It's, it seems like it's a very important. It's a historical we can work necessity. On this. He should be in the next big kid debate, and there should be who 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 should who should be out of the next of the next big kid brand. Rand. Rand Chris Christie I, Christie
3: Huckabee right? Oh Huckabee Huckabee, yeah, Huckabee, needs Huckabee to get do, out! Do
2: your uh, begging for a
4: cabinet appointment somewhere else,
3: please. Not not in front of us.
4: And sucking up to Donald Trump,
2: saying he's uh, wearing, wearing the, tie. the
3: Trump tie. Oh, oh what what a shtick! I mean, geez. that was ugly. That was really
2: uh, I, I for, I, that was that was really embarrassing. But it happened uh, early in the debate, so I forgot about it. Yeah. At one you point, Mike Huckabee. He
3: blocked it from your memory.
2: He was like, I'm wearing a Donald Trump day. Okay, so, so.
4: So put Lindsey Graham up there, invite him to dinner, and also give him his own TV show on HBO.
3: <laughs> It'd be a little morose. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess that would fit the HBO go. <laughs>
1: And we're back. We're back. We're still talking about uh, tonight's debate. Zach Carter is here, Woo! as always. He has crawled out of his his tiny little bed cubicle.
2: From <laughs> our, yeah, which exists in the studio right? where, I, where I sleep and live.
1: And we're also here with Marina Fang. Hi. Marina Fang is our associate politics editor here in D.C. And so we've talked about who won the debate and we... Talked about a bunch of things. Here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about losers. I want to talk about the great culling. I want to talk about winnowing at last. We had What's up
2: with these weird wheat metaphors? Why do we...
1: I want to talk about threshing. I want to talk about separating the wheat from the chaff. I want to talk about oats and barley.
2: I want to talk about the mill process.
1: I want to talk about winnowing. I want to talk about getting rid of some people. Two debates tonight, including undercard debate. Who's got to go? It's time. It's
2: time. Hunger Games time. Who's going? I mean, look, straight out of the undercard, everybody but Lindsey Graham.
1: Mm. Yes. Wow, you are really charitable. Why keep Lindsey Graham?
2: Well, we just kind of talked about this with he's Arthur. Fun. He, was, he's like, he seems like a nice guy who just needs some love. I think with a little, a little nurturing and support, he's going to be a top-tier candidate. He uh, could be a
1: big boy. <laughs> look, he... He's a growing boy. He's growing into the role of presidential also-ran. <laughs> No, okay. Like I think they all, I think all four got to go, but we'll keep Lindsey Graham around. Okay, you could be wrong, James, because you like him. You have no heart. So let's move on to tonight's upper card debate, varsity debate, real debate. Somebody's got to go from that. Who's it going to be, Jab Man? Wow, I love how you just stepped to it. Just (laughs) pow. I mean, I forgot he was there half
8: the time. He just, he just totally disappeared. And this is not good for all the people in his camp worrying about his chances, like his donors. He's, you know, last time he he had to give his donors a little pep talk like, hey, guys, I'm still here. Mike Murphy
1: described the donors as being, and I quote, pumped. (laughs) This is this past weekend before Mm. the debate.
2: Were they putting on Reebok sneakers in the 90s? What they
1: might have done is pumped a shotgun at Mike Murphy. (laughs) Saying, get us out of this. So Jeb Bush, not good tonight. And the sad thing was he came, I think, with a plan, a plan uh, Sam Stein pointed out on our live stream that uh, he telegraphed by creating a whole Twitter account joking about this plan, which was to criticize uh, Marco Rubio for missing all of his Senate votes.
8: Right. Which I think at last count had two tweets or something like that. Yes.
1: (laughs) Although to be fair, they're not working any harder than than
8: Marco is. And they have a lot more money than Marco. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, it's a super PAC and not his
1: campaign. Nope. Nope. We do not acknowledge distinction. Fair enough.
2: (laughs) Okay. I will also go ahead and say Chris Christie, Rand Rand Paul, Mike Huckabee, and Carly Fiorina.
1: Wow, I would not go so far as to say Carly uh, Fiorina. Yeah. You,
2: I'm tired of it.
1: You are harboring an intense dislike of Carly Fiorina. She is one of the because, worst corporate executives because, in the last 30 right, years. <laughs> you, know, you know the things that will never be successfully translated to the, to, the bo- to the body politic at large because they all like her explanations for her massive fuck-ups at HP.
2: She's just a very, very bad off. executive. But she's, she's
1: pulling off the part of, like, framing right. herself as a good executive.
8: Right. No, I agree with Zach. I, like, I think it's baffling to me that she can run on, like, oh, look, I was an executive
1: who got fired. It's not baffling. This is the whole this is what CEOs have done for the better part of my life. Shine their own <laughs> turds to a good golden finish
2: and convince nor, ostensibly well-educated people to continue with them. I will admit that she looked pretty good in that showdown with CNBC today even though CNBC was right. They were right. their, their moderators asked tough questions of her. Her responses were full of crap. But she looked she looked like she was a confident person who knew what she was talking about, and the and the crowd did like her for it. I just i you know I was a business reporter before I was a politics reporter, and I just can't I cannot abide by that record
1: I understand it's frustrating for me too. I think that I would keep Carly Fiorina and because I'm a weak, weepy <laughs> communist liberal, I would keep Jeb Bush around a little bit longer if only because <laughs> if only because if only because, if only because the the sight of such failure pleases me so much, <laughs> so much. I, I can't even tell you how much it feels my You want to keep days. Jeb Bush in this but, race because you're but, a bad
2: person. That's, what, that's I, your argument. Exactly,
1: exactly. That's fine. That's fine. I would get rid of, like, I, I look at Huckabee and Chris Christie and... Uh, 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 Rand Paul. Uh, Rand Paul, thank you. And I look at them and I say, what's the point of you? What is the, even... The point of view.
8: They were like the Jim Webbs of the demo of, uh, I guess, of this debate, because they were like, hey, guys, I'm here. Give me more time to speak. Hey, hey, hey. Like waving their arms around practically like, hey, guys, I'm here. I need some time.
1: Well, Jim Webb did his best to throttle the debates of the the, the moderators, the last debate we got a lot of people lining up to take CNBC down oh, tonight. Man. R- Literally Ryan's everybody. Pre- yeah, yeah, Ryan's Priebus yeah. says he is disappointed and that CNBC should be ashamed of their performance. We have the Jeb Bush campaign up in arms that they didn't get any time. I guess they wanted four more minutes for Jeb Bush to stand there looking like he lost a bet and <laughs> now has to run for president. I guess that was what they wanted.
2: Uh, and, and, and Ted Cruz. Ted he Cruz, does look like that. He does look like You are Ted, absolutely right. He looks like a guy who's like, oh, crap. I love lost the bet and now I have to run Ted right Cruz away.
1: who in retrospect I will say one tonight's debate now that I've had a chance to think about it oh my wow. god oh my
2: god welcome welcome to the light <laughs> <laughs> Jason uh, okay.
1: and I have political reasons for saying that but Ted Cruz Quicked out to complain about CNBC. What did you guys think about how CNBC did? And I'll tell you what, we'll even forgive CNBC that moment where they did not start the debate on time, and oh it was my like God. watching. It was like watching. Uh, it was like watching people about to panic that they were running out of things to say. How did CNBC do tonight?
8: There was that moment. What was it? The Trump moment when they when they asked Trump about his uh slamming Mark Zuckerberg about H one B visas and they were like, oh, oh, our bad. You you didn't say that, and then turns out it's on his campaign website. At so least, that was kind of funny. For now it will probably be we, gone tomorrow. It'll soon. be gone tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, they weren't prepared with the sourcing of of their own question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think it's being too hard on them. I think you know they they were in a tough position because they were obviously going to focus on economic policy, which is a region where you just say Money numbers magic and, and 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 everybody everybody gets uh you know everybody gets free um, you know that that that's a that's a, a, a tough zone for debates because the Republicans in this race like all have bonkers policies that don't where the numbers don't actually add up so right. when, when everybody is saying things that are impossible uh you know how how do you call anybody out individually on, on how impossible they're their, right their shit and they is. can
8: easily pivot away from economics and start talking about it. like oh like we need more money to bomb people or like you know other issues that are sort of tangentially related but
2: i care about strong families and right. whatever uh yeah, they totally did that do that and i i felt like they became the um this this the sort of whipping boy of the debate just just because the, the candidates got asked some pretty serious questions about about their economic policy platforms which are to be clear like unicorn fart <laughs> policy platforms <laughs> uh, and, and and then they said, you know what this would never happen. There's, this is typical liberal media bias. And they got a lot of applause out of this. But, you know, Marco Rubio, who I think the, is the, the generally accepted establishment, the, the general punditocracy uh, consensus is that he won the debate, even though I disagree with that uh, that consensus, even if only to be contrarian. I mean, he, he, they, they, he, he was complaining about, about the, the liberal media and the liberal media bias, the Florida Sun-Sentinel. Florida Sun oh, Sentinel came after me for my votes, and and then Jeb Bush, who had, I think, pretty clearly the worst performance of the night, yeah, actually zinged him pretty hard and said, if if they're such like a liberal rag, you know, then why did they endorse you, dude? Like, I mean, it it, it was it was it was just totally it was it was yeah. total crap. They 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 relied on on blaming the media when they didn't have a good response on the actual serious questions about their policies. Ted Cruz, who I think won the debate did this by demagoguing the hardest on it. I, I mean, he, he just said he got asked a real question on the debt limit and instead of answering the question, he said, you know, you guys are out here just coming after us Republicans and nobody ever asked a Democrat a hard question about anything. And it was crap. And it was really <laughs> right. nuts. They asked, they asked the Bernie
1: Sanders about yeah. being a conscientious objector. Yeah. Was
2: <laughs> really insane.
1: Yeah, they. I, I, do, think, I do think that the uh, Republicans' criticism of the Democratic debate was completely off base. They called it incivil. And I was like, actually, it was one of the most civil gatherings in the world. Yeah. Uh, you guys should look into maybe what the definition of that is. I agree that Ted Cruz... Did great tonight. And I was thinking about it in terms of what there was to actually achieve tonight. And I think that Ted Cruz, he has been doing this sort of draft off the kookaburra section. You know, he's trying to be be the guy who – he's got the resilience as the tempests of polling and time toss Carson, Fiorina, Trump, these outsider candidates around and about – uh, and and he sits back with his eight to ten percent uh and waits for which which to pick up the people who come right come tumbling he's, out of their campaigns
8: right he's just sort of waiting
1: for the storm and to the, clear the yeah. thing the thing tonight he did was he 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 he. De- he talked the game about having one foot outside Washington but he also talked about what that foot inside Washington's been doing right. and it's been leading fights I forget who had I forget fights. who had
8: this theory but someone said that like it's kind of like a speed skating race where like you know like one person falls down and there's this like domino effect of all the other speed skaters falling down and then the person kind of toward the end can zoom up and right. win the whole race and that that that's kind of yeah Ted and Cruz's you know, strategy yeah and
1: that speed skater he's in that exactly position right, yeah. is always running a strategy he's like i'm counting on these three people ahead of me to crash gloriously right and i'll be their race to the front Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. And we're back. We're back with Zach Carter. We're never far away from Zach Carter.
2: I'm always close to you in my heart.
1: And on the phone from, I'm going to assume, Boston, Shaheen Nasirapour.
2: The second best financial reporter at the Huffington Post.
1: What a great
7: introduction.
1: being among the top three, Shaheen, what's up? Hey, guys. Thanks for inviting me on. Sure thing, man. So Miss we're going to talk, talk today uh, about a, a few things. We're going to start by talking... About Elizabeth Warren ruining some people's vacations,
2: <laughs> quite literally. Yeah, quite literally. <laughs> there, there's this Obama administration proposal to do a thing, which I think most people already think is the law, but it's not to require investment advisors, you know, financial professionals who sell you financial products, you know, advise you on your, your retirement Out of the things backs like that. Of trucks, yeah, that those people be required to uh, provide advice in your best interest. It's called a fiduciary duty. And it basically just means they can't sell you a financial product because they're getting some cool kickback on the back end. It's They, they do it because it's, it's something that will be a good investment for you. Um, and Elizabeth Warren came out and issued a report after talking to a whole bunch of investment advisor companies and, and pointed out that, you know, Lincoln Financial, these other types of companies have these incentive programs in which if you sell a whole bunch of their products versus somebody else's products, you end up getting to go to these wonderful, they call them educational conferences, but it just so happens that they're in, in like, Bermuda and the bah- and the Bahamas. So she publishes this report, and I, you know, I think it kind of just went into the ether, but they, they had a vote on it anyway in Congress in, in the House. And the vote was to, uh, which I kind of want to talk to Shaheen about, it was essentially to, to destroy this rule that, that the Department of Labor or the Obama administration is trying to put out. But the way they did it was really interesting. They, instead of just saying, we don't like this rule and we want to, to destroy it, they said, we want to delay the Department of Labor's ability to write this rule until 60 days after the SEC writes their own rule. And Shaheen... As a financial expert and an expert in the regulatory system of the United States, why would someone who wanted to kill a rule just ask somebody to delay it until after the SEC wrote their own?
7: Uh, because the SEC hasn't written their own. And even though the SEC has recognized that there probably should be a fiduciary standard, basically you know, saying that all investment advisors and brokers should act in the best interest of their clients, um, the SEC has to move forward even though the staff has basically concluded that, which is why kind of a pretty smart way to kill this thing is to just say, you guys can only move forward until after this other entity, which we know will never move forward, moves forward.
2: Why do people do this in Congress? Why don't they just say, we want to kill this rule?
7: Because then they can claim that they're like in favor of the principle behind the rule without actually coming out and saying, you know what, we think Wall Street shouldn't act in the best interests of, you know, middle-class households that have meager retirement savings. I mean, who who's going to vote for a guy who comes out and, like, says, you know what, Wall Street should be able to just rape and pillage your bank accounts. We really don't give a shit. The way to, like, you know, be smart about this is to say, hey, look, guys, we just, we want all the rules to be similar. We want everyone to have to get the best advice, we want everyone to be protected, we have to make sure all the regulators and all the rule writers are on the same page. The problem is, Washington is kind of a shithole where a lot of regulators don't agree on a lot of things. They have different interpretations of different rules, and frankly, a lot of them are like opposed to more government intervention in financial markets. And so you have like this conflict both within some of these agencies and between some of these agencies over the fundamental role of government in regulating the marketplace.
2: Yeah, I mean, with the SEC, it's very interesting because I mean, we, we talked last week, uh, Jason, about the SEC being against disclosure. I mean, right. just telling people what's going on in the marketplace.
1: Which is like Dwayne Reed being against selling you drugs. Yeah, yeah. aspirin. <laughs> it's crazy. Can I back up really quick and just define fiduciary duty?
2: If you have a fiduciary duty to someone, you have to act in their financial best interests. And uh, so
1: understandably, if you're a customer, uh, if you're working with one of these uh, financial advisors, you're expecting them to give you advice that will help you in your bottom line. When they may be actually using you as a vehicle to feather their own nest
2: to to go to Aruba for a vacation, okay. as, as Elizabeth Warren detailed in in this report this week.
1: All right, cool. Continue.
2: <laughs> so, I mean, one thing that's interesting, Shaheen. I mean, you you and I have been covering uh, these these sort of weird weird votes in the House uh, for a long time on financial, I guess, essentially deregulatory measures. A lot of times, the Republicans will put out this kind of deregulatory measure just to you know rip up some part of Dodd Frank or to you know prevent the Obama administration from writing this fiduciary duty rule. And a lot of Democrats hem and haw and say, you know, if, if we add a little bit of an amendment here, um, then, then we could actually be happy with this. And this would be a nice bipartisan way to tweak an idea that the administration, you know, they sort of are moving in the right direction, but they've, they've, they're overreaching. We just got to sort of file it down. And they end up getting these huge bipartisan numbers. Like you'll get like 400 people voting for, for this, this thing to totally screw with Dodd-Frank. Um, but that didn't happen when when this vote happened this week. They, they brought the bill to the floor and only three Democrats voted in favor of, of it. Uh, it was Brad Ashford, uh, Henry Queller, and uh, David Scott from Georgia, not to be confused with Bobby Scott from Virginia. That was it. And I was curious, Shaheen, do you think something has changed in Washington over the last year or two? When, and we used to cover this stuff and you'd see all kinds of people bending over backwards to vote for Wall Street, but it doesn't seem like they want to do that now.
7: I do think it's different. And I think that I mean, there's a couple reasons for it. One, on some of these issues, the White House has gotten a lot more vocal um, about you know, both their support for kind of financial reform in general uh, and their support for Dodd Frank. And so the, the White House, President Obama has used the power of his office to draw attention to some of these issues and some of the pending votes in Congress. And on, on the other side, kind of outside government, you have a well-coordinated, well-organized group of financial reform advocates who are like, using social media, they're using billboards across Washington, they're you know, using kind of like mini rallies and not strikes, but kind of like mass protests almost in front of some of the regulatory agencies and also targeting some members of Congress, basically making it really painful for them to vote against the interests of, you know, in their view, you know, average Americans. Right. It's like, basically, you know, are we going to support the average household or are we going to support Wall Street? And before these members of Congress could just take make these votes in favor of Wall Street, because there was there wasn't really any consequence. No one was really pointing out these votes with the exception of, like, you know, a few of us. But now you have folks who are making it, like, publicly painful for members of Congress to take these votes. And I think that's that's made a big difference.
1: Well, let's move on to another topic that I know is dear to your heart, Shaheen. and This is the ongoing battle with Corinthian colleges and calling back the money they essentially stole from the people that they promised to provide an education for but didn't because they are a bunch of brigands and scam artists fuck sticks
6: <laughs>
2: Christian colleges to be clear <laughs> shut down declared bankruptcy because yes. <laughs> because they were a big scam Yes
1: and if we could have if we if I could have personally put them to the sword I would have and unfortunately that is frowned upon in polite society because there is no honor so, our,
2: James, what, what is Corinthian Colleges, and, and, and what has happened to them this week?
7: Besides scumbag. Okay, so Corinthian Colleges, Inc., uh, also known as, by their ticker, their stock ticker of COCO, We will call it um, It was a, they're a for-profit college chain. They owned schools operating under the name like Everest, WyoTech, Heald, for-profit schools all over the country. Kind of similar to the basic story of for-profit colleges in that they—and I'm just going to use— Uh, you know, these are all allegations, right? Uh, But they allegedly targeted kind of low-income, first-generation minority households. Uh, They targeted these folks and pressured them into enrolling into programs where they could become like a dental assistant or a security guard. They load up, they charge outrageous tuition. They load up, these students can take out federal student loans. Um, There's really no restriction. So they would load up these students with debt, give them credentials that weren't really valued in the marketplace. And so you have, like, a generation of people who have a ton of debt and, like, little income and really poor earning prospects. So this happened for several years. Finally, the Education Department and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau took action. The school crumbled, declared bankruptcy, and there has been this ongoing lawsuit between the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and the school – in which the regulator alleged that the school misled students into enrolling with false job placement and career statistics and induced these students to take out their private student loans. So here's the thing. You don't take out private student loans, typically, unless you've already kind of maxed out your federal student loans. Generally, that's kind of how it works, right? So long story short, lawsuit proceeds. COCO declares bankruptcy And then in September, they told the court, you know, we're not going to defend ourselves anymore in this action. The company's been liquidated. The lawyer kind of recused himself. And so this week, the judge entered a default judgment in favor of the CFPB, ruling that Corinthian misled students, you know, uh, violated a couple federal laws and induced these students to take out these loans. So here's the thing. There is a provision in federal law in which if a student can show that they were misled into taking out federal student loans by their school, and that their school violated state law, they can get their federal student loan debt discharged, right? It's almost as if like the debt was never incurred, because right. you were falsely induced into taking out the loan. So here we have a judge, a federal judge, ruling that Corinthian colleges violated federal law, and in in misleading students and take out taking out these loans. So now that like nine dollars question, well, I think maybe like the four billion dollar question, is whether that now forces the education department to discharge the debts of all of these former Corinthian students. The department has been very reluctant to do so for two reasons. One, the fiscal cost. But two, and I think perhaps more importantly in the eyes of a lot of observers and experts, for the department to discharge the debt, it would basically be an acknowledgement that they failed in their oversight role in looking after students who are enrolling at Corinth. The Which education department did. controls the purse strings. Of course, they did. <laughs> Everyone knows that the edu- education department failed. Like there should be no question about it at all.
1: We don't question it. But this, this, Wait, just to be clear, you said you said this was nine billion dollars that could be uh, discharged.
7: I think that it's not nine. I think the number is four billion. Okay. It's a couple billion dollars. I don't know exactly, and it depends on like you know how far, how many years back you go. But it's a couple billion bucks that Corinthian students, former Corinthian students, owe the federal government. Right. And the Education Department that they don't want to discharge the debt because then it's like, look, they're supposed to be gatekeepers right. for the federal student aid system, and for them to you know to discharge the debt, they're basically acknowledging. These students all got misled on our watch.
1: Which is true,
7: and, we, and it happened on our watch. And Which like here we are admitting it, of course. But like, well, one thing that's interesting,
2: I think, is is you know this phenomenon that we were we were just talking about earlier, where basically the Department of Ed dropped the ball here, um, but another agency massively, yeah, but another agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, didn't. They stepped up and and actually you know actually went after after coco which i think is just great hilariously diminutive name for for this company um they, they actually went after them, and, and they accomplished something. And I think what, you know, when, when you hear in, in Washington, if you follow these hearings, the Republicans are always going after the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau for something. They're always saying it's terrible. There's all this overreach. It's awful. And what they mean is the CFPB actually regulates this stuff, which, which other government agencies won't do. Right. And, and there's, so, so there's, always, it, it, there's, there's always a push to try and harmonize the CFPB with somebody else, the way we were talking about with the SEC earlier. By harmonize, you mean make shitty Right, right. <laughs> Move to the lowest common denominator, essentially. Right. Um, and it's, it's interesting, you know, the, the CFPB is a new agency, so it hasn't been... A lot of federal agencies just end up becoming very close to the industries they regulate over time. There's this phenomenon called regulatory capture, and we saw it in the financial crisis, right? Like, there's a lot of stuff that happened in the financial crisis, you know, she and I covered this, where it, this, the banks were doing stuff that was really not, basically not allowed. There were rules in place that should have prevented them from, from doing them, but regulators just kind of said, yeah, whatever. Uh, and the CFP, CFPB hasn't been captured yet. <laughs> so it's actually a functional agency. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, it, it is a pretty interesting dynamic. Um,
1: what, what would you give the odds that uh, these people get their money back, Shaheen?
7: Or their debts discharged, anyway? You know, I, I, I don't know. It's too hard to say. I mean, I'll, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, shy away from the question. You've got the Education Secretary, Arnie Duncan, he's stepping down in December. And he has been like ridic- ridiculed, criticized. I mean, just pick, pick whatever word you want. I mean, this guy has like gone through the ringer.
1: Arnie Duncan, you mean?
7: Arnie Duncan, in yeah. terms of like oversight of for-profit colleges, uh, the way that Apartment has treated former Corinthian students. I mean, a couple hundred of them publicly declared a debt strike, in which they said, you know what, we were we were duped into going into enrolling into this school. We were duped into taking out these loans. So you know what? Fuck you. We're not going to pay one goddamn penny because we were misled in taking out these debts and you ought to discharge them. And education departments like kind of fought them all along the way. Yep. Um, they've made like little small concessions here and there, but by and large, like, they've been pretty reluctant. And now you've got this court ruling. A lot of consumer advocates are saying, look, here's the evidence. Right? A court has ruled that these students were duped. Education Department, step up to the plate. Are they going to do so? I just, I don't know. I mean, and look, here's like a political thing that people don't really talk about often. A lot of Republicans want to dismantle the Education Department. You've got a bunch of Republican presidential candidates that want to kill the department. I don't know if those Republican candidates' arguments are bolstered by the fact, would be bolstered if the department were to say, we fucked up. In overseeing this college, and taxpayers are going to have to are going to have to shell out, or are going to have to forego four billion dollars in future student loan payments from former Corinthian students because of our fuck up. Life is pain, and <laughs> I just I don't know how that dynamic is going to work.
1: Well, uh, one thing we have going to hope for is for the grifters at Corinthian to all live a short syphilitic life and go to hell straight away
7: afterwards.
2: Yikes! It's funny you too,
7: say yeah. that. A lot of them actually are now. With the company that bought the remnants of Corinthian.
1: Go figure.
6: Go figure. Everything is garbage. We're back on a special looper edition of So That Happened.
2: Way to way to lead with a reference to an obscure sci-fi movie that nobody saw. You mean the Not one the obscure... one about
4: time travel? Yes, <laughs> with the the blunderbuss guns?
1: It's neither an obscure movie nor is it one that nobody saw
4: it
2: doesn't make any sense it's a good movie dude it's, yeah it's time travel pre- premise it is logically incoherent it doesn't work that's true of all
4: time travel movies and no one no, cares yeah, no, no, one, no, ever cares. no one, ever ever one ever cares there's a way to do it without being logically incoherent. go play with I, your eight-sided so, dice
6: <laughs> so
1: i only brought up i only brought up looper uh, at the outset just to troll you guys because you're always talking about the temporal nonsense that is this podcast and when it gets done uh, and now we've gone on a, on a rough tangent that probably will have to be cut. So congratulations to me.
2: For God's <laughs> sake, let's not talk about the budget deal. Okay, because that's what talk, people are listening right, to so us So we're going to talk
1: about the budget deal. Uh, and the extraordinary fact that we even have a budget deal. It was just a weeks ago, my friends, when I thought there might not be a leader of the House. And now we have John Boehner rescuing his legacy with one hand, pulling it out of the muck. Giving us a budget deal, giving us a debt ceiling raise, giving us a no disaster winter.
4: What's strange, how is, did this happen? what uh, the entire point of Boehner announcing his resignation was that it was supposed to free his hand to do something exactly like this, but for the several weeks leading up until Tuesday or Monday night, actually, it appeared that he wasn't doing anything and he was actually going
2: to let it all go into the crapper again and yet
4: it's,
6: Yet
2: it it's turns out not. there have been there have been a lot of negotiations. Uh, the deal is not crazy. Uh, I think if anything, it's a huge disappointment for political reporters who now don't get to report on pointless crises over and over again and, and mill some traffic from that. It's terrible for Democrats who don't get to watch the Republican Party needlessly blow itself up ahead of the 2016 elections. Uh, the, the government's just going to function for a couple of years. It's weird. It could. It
1: finally happened. It finally happened. One of the things I really enjoyed about this period of time was Paul Ryan's part in it all, because we began with Paul Ryan sort of being tugged unwillingly into the Speaker of the House role. I don't know if I want to do it. And then, well, I'll do it, but you have to grant me a bunch of conditions. And then they basically said, nah, you won't get any of those conditions. You'll get some of the House Freedom Caucus's support, but we're not going to take away our power to, you know, constantly imperil you. Uh, and you're going to have to like, agree not to bring immigration up ever. Ryan was, okay, I'll do that. And then for, for Ryan's coup de grace, I think today it was pretty amazing. As obviously, he had talked to Boehner beforehand and said, so to make this transition work, uh, I'm going to have to say some really mean things about you and the process by which this deal came out. But I obviously don't mean any of it. This is just a bunch of bullshit kabuki. I've got to do this because having... Having first won the respect of the establishment class by demanding something of the rogues, I now have to give the rogues something, which is me yelling at you for a day. But it's okay. I'm just one vote. I'm going to vote for it. Blah blah blah. So we've just witnessed this kind of weird puppet theater uh, happening in the in the in the GOP, and I think Ryan pretty much was the star turn in that in all of that.
4: So the morning after the bill was announced late Monday, Ryan confronted by a reporter Said I haven't seen it, but I sure think the process stinks. And he's referring to this closed door, yep. secret elite negotiation. And hating those is just uh, uh, de rigueur for the more conservative members. And so I, I think you're right. He was like, oh that was terrible." But there's no. It's it's hard to imagine Ryan and his or his staff at least weren't intimately involved. Oh yeah, in the crafting of this sucker. Um, and it's it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> conclusion to come to because probably the biggest part of this bill pertains to the social security disability insurance program. It takes up most
2: controversial, certainly.
4: And it takes up, uh, fully at like a third of the bill text and the bill is sprawling, covers all, all the government functions. And this comes from a committee that Paul Ryan chairs right? and, uh, Paul Ryan himself had lent his face to the effort to reform the Social Security Disability Insurance program. He chaired a hearing in, Deli- in July when they talked about it, and the stuff that's in the bill uh, really seems to be addressing some of the issues that Ryan himself said he was upset about at that time. Which is, ha- uh, you know, uh, the biggest one probably being that if you're receiving disability f- b- disability benefits, you can't work. If you start working and earning a whole lot of money, they're like, "Whoa, get off! You're yeah. not you're not allowed to." Get disability. If you're fully able to work, not a lot of people really are in that situation, because you need a really severe disability to qualify. But anyway, that's something that conservatives are constantly upset about: people gaming the system. And so there's a demonstration project in the new bill that t- that tests a uh, a gradual benefits phase out, so you don't have a sudden cliff where you earn above this level, you get kicked off. The project will test whether you know they. They uh, forego a dollar in benefits for every two dollars you earn above a certain level.
1: What kind of what does this tell us about the kind of speaker that Paul Ryan might be? Well, I I think you know, some of
4: the people I talked to on the Hill, Democrats, were like, "Well, sh- sure, maybe he's grandstanding, but I think everyone's doing what they've got to do to get this sucker passed." And people weren't, for the most part, too mad about him, though others were. And and I did a story talking to aides, like. Paul Ryan was intimately involved in every aspect of this.
6: <laughs> and
4: Ryan's office, they don't exactly deny it. What they say is, what they said was, we were working on that for months, and they took it off the shelf. We weren't a party to the negotiations. Well, but e- this- You can see how both things would be true, in a sense, and, and there's just uh, how charitable do you want to be? To Paul Ryan and his effort to have seen but, a from the secret negotiation.
2: But regardless, to, to Jason's point, if we want to know what kind of speaker Paul Ryan will be based on this, Paul Ryan doesn't have to govern now. He, they, he, they can do literally nothing for two years and nothing terrible will happen to the country. This has taken all the pressure off of Ryan's shoulders to get anything done before the 2016 elections. He can just sail right through, you know... If, if there's another big hurricane, maybe try and pass uh, you know a hurricane relief bill. Something like that could happen. Natural disasters are still on the table. But barring literally natural disaster, he can do nothing, and everything will be fine.
4: Or a giant recession. Well, they do have to reauthorize the highway bill pretty soon. So this big deal didn't include the highway bill. It didn't have export-import bank, but I don't think that's too difficult for
1: what's the harm a moderate they, Republican. What's literally the harm to their party if they pass a bipartisan highway bill as they've done forevermore.
4: I don't know. I don't yeah, there's it's not all that harmful. Yeah. Not I a mean, huge pothole. There's
1: gonna be a few there's there's probably be a few cranks beating drums about highway bill, blah blah blah, but you know, it's something the parties have come together in the past for a long time to iron out. There's no reason it should they shouldn't be able to iron this out.
2: I also don't think there's any great harm to the U.S. economy if the export-import bank is not reauthorized. I just don't think you're going to see mass job losses and people not voting for the Republicans in in November because of it.
4: Well, it's been lapsed for months. What happened?
2: Yeah, has anybody? <laughs> well, I mean, one thing is they were supposed to unwind their their port, their lending portfolio, and they have not done that. So a lot of conservatives have been have been up in arms. Well, that about, sounds about lawless. It. Yeah, it sounds. Sounds like the Obama administration just just running roughshod over the law. Um, I think they've been they've been holding out, waiting for some sort of reauthorization bill, which just doesn't look like either either uh, chamber is interested in doing right
1: now. Last week we said that Paul Ryan was basically getting the best deal in Washington. Sounds to me like now the deal's. Somehow, gotten even better. Yes, uh, because, like you said, he doesn't have to face any crises for two years. Who, who knows if he's even going to stay in the in, in the house
2: two years from now? You know, right? He could be running for president it, by then. He could be a, a governor of Wisconsin or something. Who knows?
1: Yeah. So, and I I don't think he's ever explicitly stated that he has some kind of long term design on the on the position anyway. Boehner's given him a great gift. Brian was the in the Boehner role this time making the deal, wheeling and dealing behind the scenes. Publicly, he gets to decry the deal. He was the Boehner out in, in, in the cloakroom. He's something more like a Freedom Caucus member out in public. For the cameras, yeah. And Boehner takes it one last time for the party, gets it done, gives this great gift to, to, to Paul Ryan. He gets to preside over a house at its... At the, at the during the what's been set out to be a low low risk low stress period of time, uh, and it will burnish his credentials. Well, let's talk going about going forward. He would be he, he would be the the acting Speaker of the House running for a higher office, and he'd be able to say the waters have been still this whole time I've been here. We have not had these this upheaval. I wonder how the House Freedom Caucus flexes any real muscle going forward.
2: I think it really depends on on how you look at this this uh, the, the contents of this deal. The, the House Freedom Caucus is just going to cry about it because you know they they like to cry about things. But but what's actually in the deal? You're lifting the budget caps from sequestration by eighty billion dollars. You're providing an additional thirty two billion dollars in war funding, and then what? There's there's a benefit cut to Social Security, and I think Arthur. But it, well, that, that it's, seems it's like so
4: it's modest that the Social Security advocates, as the news trickled out, were like, "Huh, well, that's not so bad." Yeah, and and and, this <laughs> section and these are
2: groups history. that always like. Damn it! Stop! Yeah, stop! <laughs> right, and so that means it means there there won't be opportunities to hold Social Security hostage again for two years. Yeah. Or, uh, so I mean, I, I I feel like all you know that stuff that stuff's good for liberals. The, the, the defense stuff is good for for big spending conservatives. The, the freedom caucus really does kind of get screwed, and they don't get anything out of it. But they also don't really lose anything. Like there, There's no great, great thing. There's there's no tax increase on, on the wealthy that the Freedom Caucus would flip out on. Well, they're
4: paying us a uh, price. I don't know how big it is, but as soon as they mostly endorsed Paul Ryan, their Facebook pages really blew up with mm-hmm. hatred.
2: Which is remarkable, given that Paul Ryan used to be the guy it's, who like blew up all of the deals, it's, right? It's, the,
1: yeah, it's perplexing. He was a conservative hero. I don't know what... Two years ago,
4: 2011.
2: No, he blew up Boehner's grand bargain in 2011, which is a much more ambitious plan than this. Well, he is
4: disliked for the Ryan Murray deal. I I think mainly because it's it was a deal with Democrats Mm -hmm. that did not reduce spending, right? So that's very basic thing tarnishes him in immigration, tarnishes him, but that won't come back.
1: I feel like a lot of pressure has been relieved from President Obama as well in this situation. But Arthur, I have a question. Uh today during the sort of pageantry in front of this budget deal when the when the leaders of the House GOP Cox were talking on television, uh Patty Murray and Kevin McCarthy uh talked heaps and praise on John Boehner, tried to celebrate him now that he's officially going to get out escape this place. Uh I I listened to Murray uh talk about uh crediting Boehner for the enormous cuts to spending uh that happened during his a speaker, and I couldn't help but think that after that brief period of time where post budget control act, when Republicans were all jumping up and down saying it's Obama's sequester, it's Obama's sequester, Republicans are you now basically saying, yeah, it's ours. We always thought it was a good idea to cut off one of our legs. They
4: were. It was only being called Obama's sequester in the context of specific small things that were upsetting. Like when the Park Service put little barricades around the World War II memorial. Right. And those veterans <laughs> were trying to get in. And like Michelle Bachman and some other uh, conservative House Suddenly members. Suddenly became
1: interested in World War II veterans.
4: They came, yeah. <laughs> they, came, they showed up and like moved the barricades three feet so that people could get in.
1: <laughs> and, and the Park and Service I, was like, that's fine, whatever you want to do. The Park so Service just stood there like, well, you know,
4: <laughs> that's that. And and for though for that like three hours, it was Obama's sequester, but John Boehner and other uh, Republicans have I think taken credit for sequester for a long time, but they especially do it in moments like this. It just feels
2: official
1: to me today, the end of it Baner's, feels official right? i i, f- you I can f- now call it Boehner sequestration
2: yeah but but that but they're undoing it. So, I Never mean, mind? you know, I, to me, it just, it just shows that this whole obsession with the federal budget deficit has always been a big show. Nobody ever really cared about it. It was just it was just a way for people to score political points with each other sure. and, and, and take shots during uh, during a recession.
4: Now, they're lifting uh, caps by a specific amount for a specific period of years. But overall, uh, the rate of federal spending didn't go up like it might have done. If there hadn't been this pressure starting in
1: 2010, well, I want to be able to say that in the next two years on this podcast, we will not have any reason to talk about a government shutdown. But all right, one complication: mm. Zach Rand Paul says he's going to filibuster the. Uh, he's going to filibuster the deal, man. Is Rand Paul going to blow this up again? We're doomed, right? It's not going to work, right?
2: Well, look. Even if he does filibuster it, even if he gives a really long talk, I think it's really unlikely for him to be successful in derailing. This this deal. And I'll give you two reasons. All right. He he might be able to get, you know, say Marco Rubio and uh, and Ted Cruz to join him because they're all running for president. And so they'll they'll feel like boxed in on their right by him or something. But on the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders has already endorsed this deal. All the Democrats are going to vote for the deal. Democrats love it because it means no more getting held hostage By the GOP, and Mitch McConnell loves it for the same reason. As Mitch McConnell, like John Boehner, doesn't want to see his party blow up their own chances at the presidency in 2016 with more stupid crap from Ted Cruz and Rand Paul. So remember, like when when the government shutdown happened, Mitch McConnell was against that. Mitch McConnell was the guy who cut the deal to, to to end it. McConnell only needs a handful of Republicans. To, to to see the light here, team up with Democrats against Ted Cruz. Who remember Ted Cruz is not very popular in the Senate,
1: and he's and McConnell's in the more inclined to see the lighthouse of Congress.
2: Yes, exactly. Now this will be hard for Mitch McConnell in that you know he will he will then be uh, roped into the into the you know establishment you know Rhino jerks just like John Boehner camp. But he's, he's been
1: in that barrel forever anyway.
2: Right, and he just got reelected in twenty fourteen, so he's yeah. got a long time to wait it out. Um, And so I I just really, you know, Rand Paul might be able to make a a good show of this and maybe boost his poll numbers a little bit uh, for the the 2016 race. I just don't see this actually derailing the deal.
1: It'll be far more interesting to see if Ted Cruz comes back to D.C. to have a snob off with Rand Paul on the floor of the Senate.
2: That would be fun to watch.
1: Come and filibuster it, guys. Come and filibuster it. The Huffington Post is requiring you to come and filibuster the deal. In fact, Rand Paul who just said that it was okay to misquote Founding Fathers. He told us today, he said, I love the Huffington Post, I take all my cues from you guys. When the Huffington Post says jump, Rand Paul says how high, that's the way I am. That's a direct quote from Rand Paul today. I attribute it in the Rand Paul fashion
2: to Rand Paul. I believe that quote is disputed by by contemporary historians.
1: So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Adriana Usero and Peter James Callahan with technical assistance from Christine Knetta and spiritual guidance from Caitlin Boguki, When all hope is gone, Caitlin remains. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Marina Fang, Shaheen Nazirapour, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at itunes.com that Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store while you're there. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to sothathappened at huffingtonpost.com. As always, we thank you for listening, and we miss you already.